What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 45, No Guitar is Safe. Thank you so much for listening. I'm really psyched for today because it's just such a multifaceted episode. We're going to have rock moments. We're going to have straight-up classical moments. We're going to have moments that fuse both of those things. We're going to talk horror movies, jam on some Django jazz and some Zeppelin and Bach, and even drop a few F-bombs when discussing some lyrics from a certain rap band. Hey man, it's a real conversation. Some real words were dropped. It was hilarious, I thought. So I hope you dig that part. You were warned. When we first turn on the mics, our guest is going to blow your mind with a Shakespeare monologue that seems to be burned into her brain. We're talking about the brilliant Gretchen Men. You're hearing samples from her new album, amazing piece of work. It's called Abandon All Hope. This album came about when my good friend and my mentor, Michael Melinda, editor-in-chief of Guitar Player Magazine and other magazines, came to Gretchen with an idea. Mike sort of conceived this for Gretchen and wrote a libretto that comes with the CD. If there's a third person who really made a huge contribution, it's Max Crace, who did the layout and the beautiful photo booklet. You really got to get a hard copy of this record if you can. Head to GretchenMen.com for that. I'm sure that if you don't know Gretchen already, you're going to be super inspired listening to her on the show because she's one of the most inspired people I know. Spectacular guitarist and composer. I think the only time she's ever bored is when she's flying jet airplanes for a major airline. As you'll hear, I'll let her explain. We're also going to talk about Zepparella, her amazing Zeppelin tribute band. And you know, Gretchen and I have been friends, gosh, man, 2008? Onward, met her on stage at Soundcheck when we were both on the same bill up in San Francisco. We even had our own band for a while, a little acoustic duo called Lapdance Armageddon. If you Google or YouTube Lapdance Armageddon tri-tip, you will see Gretchen and I literally murder a Fender Strat. Well, you know, it's a fantasy sequence, but we put the hit on the thing like something out of Reservoir Dogs. I also got a little bit of production credit on Gretchen's first solo album, which is called Hail Souls, which was a little more of a guitar-centric affair. The new album, Abandon All Hope, just expands Gretchen's compositional universe geometrically. I adore Gretchen's father too, Don Men. He used to be the editor of Guitar Player way back in the day. I didn't know him back then, but he was also the publisher and he's also a 
brilliant cat, super inspiring and funny, much like his daughter and his other daughter, Kirsten, who also appears on Gretchen's new album. And it's hard to keep up with all the different things Gretchen does. You know, this year she played at the She Rocks Awards at NAMM, trading licks on stage with Nita and Lita. That would be Nita Strauss and Lita Ford, who were both also on this podcast on past episodes. And just a few days ago, she was at Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, one of the counselors, teaching alongside Joel Hoekstra and Steve Morse, who again were also on this podcast. And Glenn Hughes and Mark Farner. I think maybe Elliot Easton was there too. Pretty crazy. She's got a lot going on. Thank you so much for listening to this show. No Guitar is Safe. My main sponsor is the company I've been at forever, Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player is celebrating its 50th anniversary in print. Dig it. My name is Jude Gold. I thank Zoom for the recorder that I use to record this show. So let's hop in the Jolly Guitar Copter and head up to the San Francisco area to hang out with Francis and Ferdinand, those are Gretchen's cats, and Gretchen herself, where we find out that when she wants to test a microphone, she just simply starts reciting some good old Bill, as in Bill Shakespeare. Let's go jam with Gretchen. The sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep no more. I'm getting it. And by sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks with flesh is there too. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance, to dream. I there's the rub. No. Keep going. I there's the rub for in this sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil. Must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurs that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin? <laughs> who would fardels bear to sweat? and grunt under a weary life but that the dread of something after death the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of thus conscience doth make cowards of us all and thus the native hue of resolution is sickly or by the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pitch and moment in this regard their currents turn awry and lose their name of action that is the most epic mic check i've ever had on the show is that tupac what is where are those lyrics iced tea yeah Ice tea. Right. I wish. Yeah. I wish. I don't remember that. No, one. actually, it was the one you did. Um, it was the second verse of "When We Get Them Hoes." <laughs> Two live crew. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I think, one of the funniest things. That when I told you about <laughs> that, I played on a two live crew song, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Okay, she's going to be so offended by these horribly misogynistic lyrics and completely crude visuals and really bad f bombs." And you were like. So offended, but it was only because the rhymes were so bad. The writing or, was deplorable. <laughs> well, and also didn't not even by make the content. sense. Remember the line like, let me fuck you, bitch. Let me fuck you hard. If you don't come for me, you won't come for God. Now, first of all, how difficult is it to rhyme the word hard? And second of all, this guy's being such like a badass pimp. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to fuck you hard. Was it good for you? Did you come, honey? Like, I mean, it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, my God. It's just epic. It's not the content, but just the poor structure of the oh, literature. Oh, yeah, please. I don't care what it is. I mean, <laughs> I was joking around about mm. it, but it's actually not really a joke that I became accidentally this huge Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> like <laughs> obsession. And 
I don't like horror. Actually, usually it's either too stupid or too upsetting for me. And for whatever reason, what I, what I realized with it and with a couple other things like that is that if something's done really, really, really well, I just have an appreciation for it. Meaning that like, you know, whether even if it were really misogynistic lyrics, if they were done really well, it doesn't mean I have to say, oh, yeah, I totally stand by everything in the content of that. But if something's done well, it's done well. Right. So you would have had a lot of respect had it been if it expert been, misogyny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> would have been delivered in a way that was clever and if like the phrase structure was interesting and if the rhymes even actually sort of rhymed or if they didn't rhyme if they didn't rhyme in a cool way yeah, like just, some people I mean, force played, rhymes in a cool way that's funny like i mean <laughs> i played on a song i couldn't name any of the lyrics and you actually how do you have this memory like you remember those lyrics from that song i played it for you like it was that 10 bad. years ago yeah and then that in, i actually remember a really bad poem a guy on a plane was writing next to me and I kind of like looked over and it was so bad that I was like oh my god I gotta remember this <laughs> what was it, it started your supple brown eyes choked my soul this week the nectar of energy seeps from your body it caresses my body and nurtures my confusion I was like oh my god, oh my god. the poor girl who's gonna get that <laughs> I love choked that. my soul this week I love that way you said you told me once you're at when it comes to books and what people are reading, you're a total peeping Tom. Like you just want to know what oh, people yeah. are, <laughs> what, what, what's going on with them. Oh, totally. It was like why, when I was reading the Da Vinci code, it's like, I, I might as well have been read. I don't know. Like, like I was so embarrassed to be reading that book and yet it was completely, it just, it's, it's truly a page turner. And I remember like any book that keeps you on like the stair machine or the elliptical longer than the time like when you're like okay i'm gonna go for a half hour and then like 45 minutes later you're like i'll do an hour if i can keep reading this terrible book that totally has drawn me in but i was really embarrassed about that one That's you're not gonna funny. let anybody hear me talking shit about everyone right this is all being recorded <laughs> oh great how do you how uh, much of that shakespeare do you remember from the that you started off with there like that was epic um how much other shakespeare do i no, remember i mean that one was that the entire thing? Yeah. What, which monologues? I know what that is. To be or not to be. To be or be. not to be. Yeah, yeah. 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 From, uh, yeah. from Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I know one from Macbeth that's shorter. <laughs> um, I know the general prologue of the Canterbury Tales in Middle English. <laughs> <sighs> Please don't include any of this. I sound so douchey. <laughs> oh, my God. It's epic. It's, just, <laughs> it's so for the win. What you just, yeah, very funny. I love it. Um, this is a, I don't know if this is a segue, but I remember you guys were going to, you and Mike had the concept or maybe, tell me about the concept for your new record. Okay, so the, the concept was all Michael's, but it was serendipitous because when he came to me about it, I'd been thinking about what am I going to do after I released my first album. And one of the things that had interested me was combining literature and music. And I had toyed around. In the back of my mind, I thought something cool could be done with J.D. Salinger, like the nine short stories. It turns out um, Alexandra Zerner already did that. It's funny how, you know, different people across the world from each other can have similar ideas. Although it's it's not that outlandish. Just say it. Great minds think alike. No, no. I was just saying it's not that outlandish for somebody to take inspiration from some of the greatest works of art out there, you know. Right. So, um, so I didn't know Mike very well at the time. I knew of him and I had, you had introduced us. And... When he said he had an idea he wanted to pitch to me, I kind of thought that I was going to hear what I've heard from everybody like since I started playing, which is you need to sing and you should play like pop music, which is understandable for people who think that, that the only motivation somebody could have for playing guitar is fame and fortune. 
And so I sort of steeled myself for that being the conversation and for trying to be open-minded, but at the same time to, to not be swayed. I mean, I never have been, but you know, when a record just comes out and you're kind of looking at yourself like, okay, what did I just do? I just put this piece of myself out there and no matter how much you try not to be hung up on other people's reactions to it. On the other hand, if, if music is meant to be a communication, it is interesting to know what people make of it. So when he sat down with me, and I still remember we were at a Starbucks right near, um, right near the guitar player offices. And he, we prefer world headquarters, but okay. okay. Yeah. The international headquarters. Yeah. Thank you. Guitar player. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he brought out the sheet and it said, I think it said like Gretchen men, Dante's Inferno, a journey in 11 different moods or something. And he had 11 different areas of the Inferno already scripted out. The names were different. Like the first one was River Archeron and the second one was also uh, Judgment of Minos, Limbo. And the third one was Francesca and Paolo and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember like it was one of those moments where you just get goosebumps. And I knew in a second what I was going to be doing for the next few years of my life. That's so and badass. It was, it was really exciting. It was really exciting, especially to come in with, um, I don't want to say defensive expectations, but in a way to kind of, to feel like I was going to have to defend the fact that, that my motivation for doing music never has been to, to be as famous as possible or, or to make a lot of money. Um, of course, I want to do justice to the music that I have written and I want the people who might like it to know of it, but my intention has always been to just try and grow as much of as an artist and to become fluent in the language that I most love. And, um, and so to see this whole thing unfolding, you know, before my eyes on this sheet of paper and realizing that already where I wanted to be going, which is deeper with composition and concept and things like that, that it was going to be mandatory for tackling a project like that. And, you know, I never took it lightly. You know, when you're talking about a musical representation of one of the greatest works of all time in all of literature, or poetry, I guess, epic poetry. Um, you're talking about Dan Brown's Inferno, the sequel to uh, <laughs> Da Vinci Code, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, wasn't that Angels and Demons? Uh, not oh, that I would I know, know, not that I would know. Um, but um, but it was so exciting. It was so incredibly exciting. And also, I didn't take it lightly because um, I knew that it was a concept that Mike had been kind of carrying around and close to his heart for a while. And he mentioned that he had wanted to do it, but he hadn't quite figured out the right home for it. So to be entrusted with somebody's kind of baby, um, not to say that I wouldn't have worked really hard on whatever it was that I had done, but when you have an outside responsibility, not just to yourself, you know, somebody else as well, to a larger concept, all that is is more reasons to work like crazy. Well, it's an amazing record, I have to say. It's like, it's beyond the scope of what anyone would consider a guitar album. Your mm -hmm. first album was heavily, you know, guitar-y, mm -hmm. like all yeah. over the place. And then, but then you, like you listen to this new record and like, I want to play what I think, if just for a second we could call it a guitar album, I think this is one of the most rocking moments I've ever heard on a quote, guitar oh. album. I'm so curious as to which it that is.
was really interesting from a creative perspective on this is that the way I'd always approached, well, I shouldn't even say always. It makes it sound like I've been doing this longer than I have. The way I approached writing for my first album was that anything that I found interesting or cool or beautiful, I just turned it in. I just developed it into a piece. When you're trying to capture um, an emotional, um, an existential kind of feeling, it takes, it gives you a very clear creative direction. So, for example, like in Limbo, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to really use the fundamental aspect of Western music, which is tension and release. It just kind of had to be tension moving to other tension if I was really trying to convey Limbo. I mean, there, there actually is a, a little bit of tension and release in there, but I had to avoid that as much as possible. Um, but, and yet at the, at the same time, still try to create something that felt like a piece of music. Like, does something feel like a piece of music if there's not tension and release? Like, that's, that's like our sense of time, you know? It's what makes a piece feel like a piece. I love that piece. It's like the second one, right? Yeah. And you, yeah, you definitely feel like you're floating out in the ether. Mm. It was really interesting to write, and honestly, I never would have written anything like that had I not been kind of pushed in this direction, which is why I'm so infinitely grateful to have had this project brought to me. Um, But so, okay, with Bloodshed specifically, I was trying to think of how to make violence just sound as violent as possible. And, you know, it's not a big secret, but the way to make something sound more like itself is to put it next to something that's on the other end of the extreme. So I knew if those heavy parts were to sound as vicious as I wanted them to, I had to make the orchestration a lot more sparse elsewhere. So so what I did is I... And and I also wanted something that felt jarring and odd. So it's in in 7-8... We've, we're all so desensitized to big guitars now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're you've graduated to the biggest guitar rig of all, which is a huge string section. What mm-hmm. strings do you have going on that song? That's a full string quartet. I had initially just thought it was going to be violin. But then, for two reasons, I incorporated a full string quartet. I guess three reasons. The, f- the first reason is the parts I was writing for violin were just unbearably difficult. And the, the people who I have on the album, they're actually one of the better string quartets in Italy. Um, I learned about them because um, I had actually helped produce some vocals of my sister, Kirsten, for Daniela Gottardo's album, Non Temperato. And we did that here in San Francisco. He was on Skype and you know we just I had my instructions going in and so we worked remotely and then when he played with the string quartet led by the first violinist is Glauco Bertanian uh, he was raving about how amazing they were he played with them not on his album but for the Eddie Lang Jazz Festival and when he was talking about Glauco I thought wait a minute if this guy's so amazing and Daniele likes working with him so much and um, frankly you can get amazing musicians in Italy for um, a very reasonable price, you know, um, and they're very glad to to be doing something. So I said, what if we did 
the tracks remotely. Like, could you produce the way I did with Kirsten's vocal? And so we did, and the first tracks, I, I think we did three or four songs I got back were amazing, beautiful. So good that I, I definitely signed him up for the rest of the album. And, and I went out to Italy to do, to be there for the tracking. And he was so good. I mean, an incredible musical spirit. And one of the things that when you've written something, you don't, there's nothing you love more than somebody who just so embraces the music. And though I had worked hard and had been studying orchestration to try to make sure that, that I was writing parts that were idiom, idiomatically correct for the instrument. It doesn't mean that some of them were not really difficult. My tendency is to think of myself as such a hack and that like, oh, I'm giving this to this virtuoso violinist. If we're doubling the part, if I can play it, of course he can play it. And the fact of the matter is, is that I can work on it for as long as it takes for me to be able to play it. And he's just trying to read it or has, you know, had it for two weeks before the session. So... But when I got there, he the harder we worked him, the happier he got. It's like, we it was wonderful. And at the very end of it, he came out with this one piece that I'd written for solo violin, and he kind of waved the paper at me. Um, his English wasn't super good, and my Italian is definitely a work in progress. Um, and basically, he said, this is really, really well written. And I was incredibly flattered and very happy to hear that. And he said, you should write some stuff for my string quartet. So... You know me well Whoa. enough. How many times do I have to be asked to write? You know, he, he, <laughs> yeah. that was it. I came home and I started looking at the rest of the songs and I thought, well, if I could get a whole string quartet, what would that mean? And I, so it's not on every track. I mean, nothing's on every track. Um, but I, I decided the places where I really was wanting string quartet, the places where I'd written, you know, a lot of double stops on the violin, the parts became a lot more playable when I just embraced the fact that what I really was hearing in a lot of places was string quartet. That's amazing. It sounds so incredibly three-dimensional, too. Mm. I picture you recording in some awesome Italian cathedral or something. Oh, well, that was done at New Frontiers Recording Studio in Italy, um, a great studio. Um, Ugo Bolzoni was the engineer for that, and he was great because he had had a lot of experience blending classical and modern instruments with Daniele's album. Um, and, and that's something he knows quite a bit about anyway. So recording the classical instruments there made perfect sense. I mean, we did like the drums here at Get Real Productions in San Francisco, which is where I did most of my first album, Hail Souls. So, um, so yeah, they, um, he got great, great sound. We actually, um, and the, the performances were amazing. We didn't, we didn't do any pitch correction, no, no melody, no auto tune on any of it. Um, they were just astoundingly great musicians. So I'd love to, you know, go deeper on some of your tracks again later in the interview. But mm -hmm. I think some people who have maybe just discovering you be curious how you got to this point where you're recording mm -hmm. badass string musicians in mm -hmm. Italy and doing all this stuff. You've done so much other things in your musical career. We even had a project. Yes. Lap Dance Armageddon. The most hilarious. <laughs> I still think it's a, like the most hilarious name ever, but. And you've had tribute bands, but what made you want to start on guitar? What, what was there an inspiring moment or a piece of music? Um, oh, definitely. Um, I think like most 15 year olds, I discovered Led Zeppelin and ACDC and stuff like that, which was 
my parents thought was funny because it was like their generation's music. But I think it's like it, it spans generations. I feel like, you know, now when people come to see Zapparella, if it's an all ages show, there'll, there'll be kids there who totally know Led Zeppelin. Um, so I think I was already interested. I'd gotten interested in music at like the requisite age. Um, but really soon after that, I also gravitated naturally towards um, guitar. I remember liking Joe Satriani. I remember loving Eric Johnson, like Cliffs of Dover was definitely the song that made me be like, I have to pick up a guitar. There was so much joy in it. And I remember thinking like, wow, this must be the most joyful person you know, to play guitar like that. And then I thought, wait, maybe it's kind of the other way around. Maybe he's that joyful because he can play guitar like that. And I thought <laughs> if I could play guitar like that, I'd be pretty happy too. So, I would be too, shit. So I I picked it up really never having any a, a thought of becoming a professional or anything like that. And a lot of people think it's absolutely the weirdest thing that somehow my dad didn't have, like didn't put a guitar in my hands, but he didn't. I mean... I always knew my dad as a journalist. It wasn't until really I got interested in music that I realized that the type of writing he did had anything to do with music. And both of my parents were so open. They just wanted me and my sister for, to figure out what it is we wanted to do. And hopefully it wouldn't be anything that would be too deplorable. And then they could encourage us in that direction. So, But it was when like I got interested in music on my own was when my dad was like, hey, you like Eric Johnson? Have you heard of Jeff Beck? Like, oh, you like... You like Joe Satriani and Steve Vai? Have you heard of Steve Morris? You it's know? so funny. I, those heroes you just mentioned, you're like personal friends with all of them, basically. Oh, no. I, <laughs> no, I've... Uh, that's I mean, that's overstating to a de- to it. To a degree, at least. They're, they've been very kind and lovely when I've met them. and um, Yeah, it's cool that you get to meet your heroes and, and talk music with them. It's I think about music is that it's a really, really small community, which is why sometimes a lot of the... The strangeness, uh, the strangeness that goes on within it, you know, the competition or it's people looking at the wrong enemy. Like everybody, the way I see it, who's doing music is is helping the community at large. And if music became something that people weren't playing and people weren't interested in, then would really be in trouble. So it isn't about the guitarist on YouTube who bugs you for whatever reason. It's everybody who's doing it especially in this day and age when the payoff is so tiny, if anything. I think anytime people are continuing to try to do music or art, when there isn't a big payoff, it can only be a good thing for the art because it weeds out the people who are there for the wrong reason. So those of us who are doing it are doing a public service the way I see it. (laughs) Absolutely. It really is. I mean, if you can make people happy at a show in any capacity, you're, you're healing people. Sometimes it just blows my mind like how grateful I am that the musicians who move me, that they've done music, that they've made a choice that is unquestionably a more difficult choice, that involves a lot more work, a lot more financial strain, things like that. Regardless of if they get a payoff at the end, which, you know, we all hope that our heroes do, but nevertheless, they probably... A musician endures a lot of stuff that isn't glamorous, One of the things I often point out to people is that for every show, chances are the musicians are loading 
anywhere from two to four times the gear to play the show, you know, out of the studio, into the van, out of the van, into the venue, play the show, and then reverse the process. I feel like music is one of those things like surfing where I've never surfed, but I'm positive surfing must be the most fun thing in the world because how on earth would you do all of the stuff you have to do? I mean, oh, yeah. I don't count Hawaii <laughs> surfing. I'm, I'm talking about here where there's like, you know, the great white capital of, you know, this yeah. hemisphere and it's like freezing water and people are getting up at the crack of dawn to put on like the most horrific seeming, you know, body armor to get in freezing water. I went surfing once. That was an incredible workout just getting the wetsuit on. Right. <laughs> so the way I see it, I know surfing's got to be the most fun thing in the world, and music's got to be too. Because why would anybody do all this other stuff you got to do? It's true. I mean, I, I, you couldn't have chosen a better metaphor in my book. Like, really? I think guitar players. I feel like we surf. We surf at the top mm. of the groove. Yeah. You know, maybe it's some a pre-planned route, or maybe we're improvising, or maybe it's a great melody, but. Mm. And we carve in, we carve in with our fingers or our picks different ways. They mm-hmm. dig into the wave of different dynamics, mm-hmm. do yeah. occasional tricks. Yeah. Oftentimes eat shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do but, that you know, a lot, yeah. And we always get back up on the, on the board. Yeah, yeah. What was the first lick you remember playing? I don't remember the first lick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have I a remember- band in high school or anything or... No, no, I, I started, I took my first lessons in high school, but it often like baffles me that like some of these kids in high school, like have all this time to practice. At least for me, it's like, I was so busy in high school, like junior year, it's all like, you know, you're thinking about college, you're thinking about the SATs, you know, you're trying to get decent grades. So it's like, I had, I had a guitar and I picked it up, but I didn't, I didn't actually get serious about it until college. Um, and that was, and that was really because I, it kind of dawned on me like, oh, like I got to pick a major and I got to figure out what I want to do with my life. You learn a lot about yourself when you have to make a big decision kind of in a moment. And I ended up having to declare my major a lot earlier than I had expected. And so I declared music, which everybody in the department thought was totally weird because they were like, wait, didn't you like just start playing guitar? <laughs> Um, but I'm the classical you. guitar teacher, Philip DeFremery, who I still try to work with remotely, um, amazing, amazing teacher, not just an amazing player, but a real gift for teaching. And he had this fantastic reputation. I remember somebody told me that he has perfect technique and all of his students had perfect technique. So I was like, sign me up for perfect technique courses. <laughs> um, so he would teach private lessons? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he taught for all of the five colleges in the area, or six colleges, actually, because it was the... I went to school in Massachusetts, and there were five colleges and then a community college as well. You taught for all of them. Now, you played a ton of electric guitar, rock guitar, through half stacks and everything. But mm-hmm. What do you think is the, the greatest thing that you've learned from that classical study back when you were in college? Like For me, it was really intense to go up on stage and, and have to play classical pieces and learn about the pressure of remembering this stuff while a bunch of eyeballs are staring at you. There's no improvisation, really. you got to remember that stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think for me, the the two, I never really thought about it until you asked, but the two things that popped into my, my mind, the first thing is that music can be very meditative. In classical guitar, things move a lot more slowly. Maybe that's because I was just really beginning on the instrument, but I remember sometimes I would work a whole week just on eight measures. And... And I remember my 
Phil, my teacher, saying, you know, coming coming into my lesson, playing those eight measures, and him kind of nodding in approval and be like, you know what, that's why you get stuff done. And so for me, the takeaway was that sometimes the best way kind of to speed up is to slow down. Um, so I, that was a takeaway for me. The, the other thing that I really feel like I noticed, everybody says it, but I think it's true, is how much of your tone is just you, you know, and it's your ears and your fingers because classical guitar, it's, it's yeah, it's the instrument and your fingers and that's it. And you can get incredibly different ranges of tone um, intentionally um, as well as the kinds that aren't good and that you try to avoid. But you notice just how much of it is, you know, right there in your fingers. Would you play a little bit for us? Something? A little piece of little? I see you doing all this great stuff, like on your Instagram <laughs> and so wonderful. Okay, let, let me see. Such it. a beautiful guitar, too. What is that guitar you have there? This is a Kenny Hill Ruck model, classical. It's way more guitar than I am um, guitarist, but it was um, an incredible um, gift from, from a, a very dear friend that um, that I tried to deny, but... I was, I was forced to take it. What a wonderful thing. <laughs> it would have been rude not to accept it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Very nice. Okay. Yeah, I saw you had a like a New Year's resolution of more Bach for 2017. Yeah. I'm trying to get Tremolo to the other. Oh. I don't have that together at all. Any, any <laughs> it sounds so good. It's, it's a real instrument. You're playing a real instrument right now. I feel like, like when I show up to a casual gig and there's a really great horn player next to me, <laughs> I'm like, that's a real instrument.
of Bach so much. I love your resolution. I love to play those Bach melodies like on electric guitar, you know. amazing what he can do with just a single melody you know i was interviewing uh, mike stern and he just sits there and does those flute sonatas all day because he's fascinated and this is like the preeminent modern beboppist of, mm-hmm. and he sits there and does the bach because he loves how he can create how he can project so much different harmony with a single monotonic instrument i think i read that bach was uh jenga reinhardt's favorite composer and you can totally hear that in a lot of Django's melodies, um, in, in terms of how he approaches melody, you know, very, very yeah. arpeggiated. Uh, oh yeah, I almost forgot the coolest part. Yep. But classical guitar is so much harder because you're doing bass lines and... <laughs> oh yeah, it's like the polyphony. It's like you said before we turned on the recorder. So you the, what have is, such great natural tone, just like we're talking wow. about tone being in the fingers and ears. You've got, I well, love your tone. Thank you. That's the ultimate compliment. Anyone could play any guitar player. Mm-hmm. Pay any guitar. I always say the best compliment is not, wow, great playing, not incredible tone. Or, what's your rig? It's like, <laughs> no, it's even further than that. It's mm-hmm. like someone goes out and buys the shit that you were using the next oh, day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They go out and buy that pedal or something. <laughs> they like your tone. <laughs> so gosh thank you for break, breaking out that guitar that was really oh, awesome and uh feel free to play it it's a it's a great instrument i feel like i should go sterilize my hands and trim my nails Can and put all guitar picks like out in the car before i touch that instrument i have a hand autoclave <laughs> you can just <laughs> take away the first few layers of no it's fine go for it if you, you want to try it no uh, well i try would love yeah. i would love to for yeah. okay two seconds yeah, but yeah, yeah. here but um, look at this. I didn't realize it had two uh, sound yeah. holes up yeah. by th- where the neck joint is. Yeah. See if I can remember the little cannon part. This, this thing is so nice. I feel like a absolute heathen having this on my right leg, you know? Yeah, like cowboy style? Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> don't do that <laughs> cowboys oh now you look great now that was proper classical. excellent delivery uh, <laughs> don't do that yeah but no just don't even don't even look at it actually it's just such a perfect instrument you can just feel how tight it is and how responsive every surface and yeah it's lightweight like i was playing lawrence juber's um uh, martin signature models on, mm-hmm. on the recent episode and it has that same kind of feeling. It's a lightweight guitar. It's so tight. Everything yeah. is yeah, really no wasted responsive. vibration. Totally. I mean, and I feel like sometimes these really fantastic instruments, um, like you said, like when you get a tone that you love, like it really inspires you to play better. Um, at the same time, it's like it'll, if you tell it to do something crappy, it'll totally do that too. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, there you go. Um, so there can be something... 
I don't want to say unforgiving. Yeah, maybe a little unforgiving, but but at the same time, it's like, what better way to deal with the stuff that needs to be dealt with than to have it right in your face? I think it's a, there's no more lonely feeling as a, and an amazing feeling than doing a classical guitar recital. I did one in my life in right. college. I played at a friend's wedding and I've... <laughs> I think I was like my palms were sweaty <laughs> like I was all like shaky it's terrifying I was yeah playing a classical a solo classical thing is like I would much rather be on a stage in front of anybody and as many anybody's out there than do like a classical gig at a coffee house <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah there are people are listening yeah now um the guitarist I, I assume maybe you used that one on Abandon all hope. I did. I did. Yeah. There's some this beautiful one. moments. Thank you. Yeah, this one, it's um, Lake of Ice. Also, uh, Hellward Swoon. That's a shorter yeah. piece. the end grace is this Mm -hmm. incredible epic beautiful Mm. uplifting piece the ablution piece i was glad to do that that actually wasn't part of the initial conception um I actually remember I started writing it on my birthday year before last, and um, which is great. It's it's funny because I feel like, and actually then I recorded it, um, at least on piano. Um, we recorded the piano last year, also on my birthday. It's funny because people typically, I think, go out and like rage on their birthdays. But I kind of realized there's something really awesome about, at least for me. Actually, I learned that with you. On my birthday, I came into the studio with you um, and I did the uh, harmonics for um, for tri-tip it was just a little moment but I, I remember kind of coming away from it being like wow there's something so awesome about doing something you know on a day that means something to you that has kind of I don't want to say permanence because who knows like maybe my cds will sit in my garage forever but like nevertheless when you're kind of putting a part of yourself into the like recorded record there's something kind of cool so something meaningful on your birthday as opposed to yeah um yeah so so i wrote grace was actually the first thing i've written that i had totally clear in my mind the concept uh not like every note written or anything like that i'm i'm no no Mozart is as if you needed me to say that but um no no I'm not I, I aspire to be somebody who can do more writing in my mind and then go to paper and I can do I can do tiny tiny little bits of that but not not a nine minute piece or whatever by any stretch of the imagination but but I had the whole the structure and the um the concept of it clear in my mind so it was actually one of the things that I wrote ra- rather quickly for how long and involved it is beautiful tone on there too the Thank way you, you recorded it um and do you audition all of your pieces and arrangements on sibelius or anything to like yeah just before you go in and hand the parts to the world-class musicians who are on the schedule and yeah 
money's ticking. (laughs) I I wrote everything in score form, including the guitar parts, which was um, good and bad. You know, it was good because one of the things that I've always kind of wanted to do is if, if I write away from the instrument, it ensures two things. One, that I'm not writing egotistically to try to showcase something cool I think I can do. Um, and it also means that I'm not writing with my own technical biases or limitations in mind. So I kind of feel, at least for me, the best technique to work towards is that which your your creativity mandates. So if I find that I'm writing something that requires me to work in a particular direction, then I have my then I know exactly where I'm supposed to be working rather than working a lot to get fluent in a technique that maybe I don't really have any creative use for. So I wrote all of the album away from the instrument. Uh, maybe I came I came up with the riff for Hound of Hades on the guitar. It's a very guitar-y riff. Ninety-five, maybe ninety-five to ninety-eight percent of the album was written away from the instruments, and it's in all of it's in score form. I love that one riff on Hound of Oh yeah. <laughs> hear a little piece of what the score sounds like but as you're auditioning it before sure you actually like, you this hear is coming straight sure or, like, or which one did you want to hear just some with multiple instruments okay we have grace pulled up so we could do that one let's see and um, this helps you hear you know you know all your instruments are in the correct ranges mm-hmm. and you can hear if there's any bad notes or <laughs> you know any incorrect accidentals or anything mm-hmm. so the midi sounds don't sound very magical but for me I don't have a problem working with them this way I know some people like when I would give the musicians some of the tracks they would be like what is this it sounds like video game music I'm like well it's not going to sound like that when we have real instruments on there but um, I always have to pre-apologize because I think most people find the MIDI sounds pretty atrocious so here you go this is classical guitar and then it's a string quartet accompaniment next part that comes up there's no guitar it's where bass drums and piano enter along with string quartet The other thing you can do is you can also isolate lines. So you can hear just one instrument. You can hear any combination of instruments together. So it enabled me to do something like, okay, well, how how's violin one 
and the viola sounding together? How's, how's the bass and the cello sounding together? How's just the string quartet sounding? So, so. cool. I had a teacher in, when I went to music, the music program at Cal Berkeley, California. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing that he you know, could read an entire orchestral score of different clefs and approximate them all with his 10 fingers on the piano. Yeah, that's amazing. I can never do that, ever, I don't think. Maybe 10, 20 lifetimes from you now on. Do, yeah, you could do it, you know. It's just a question of it's when. Not, yeah, <laughs> is it when? Yeah, not possible on the guitar, no Tomorrow way. Tomorrow afternoon from, yeah. You have to be on a piano. Yeah, yeah. And um, all, but, uh, but now with this, you can do some of the stuff that, that someone like that can do in terms of hearing all the different lines instantaneously together. It's so cool. It's it's a very helpful tool for sure. I remember actually the first string quartet I ever wrote, which I hesitate to even call it that because it was truly like my mm-hmm. first compositional effort. Actually, that I guess the first thing I ever wrote was for string quartet, even before guitar. Come to think of it, in school. Um, but I didn't have anything like this. We had like you know, and and there wasn't a recording program because it was so um, it was such a classically focused department. And I remember being in the practice rooms at the piano trying to read three different clefs at the same time. And it was like, it was this laborious process of like, okay, all right, okay, all right, okay. Uh, oh, wait, no, 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 okay. Huh? Okay, next, you know, and it's like, right. to even play a couple of measures would take some unbelievable amount of time, which, yeah, I mean, I guess that's what you have to do to get fluent in it, but it also slows things down creatively and also doesn't oh, yeah. give you the ability to be objective because so much of it is like, the tendency can be when you're going at a slower pace is to really overcompose something because you're going so much slower. So speaking of your career ascent, mm-hmm. when did you start flying airplanes? See what I did there? Oh, yes. <laughs> I know people have asked you this before and I've talked with you mm-hmm. about it, but as someone who flies all the time, it's always a miracle to me when this big mechanical thing mm-hmm. lands. Mm-hmm. What kind of jet? It was an Ember 145 regional jet, uh, 145 and 135. So I've flown on it so many times. Remind me how, so is it like two jet engines, one on each wing or Mm -hmm. it just seems like, I don't know, so much responsibility to, to fly, to be responsible for the, all those lives and and it's such an intense job and you just happen to do it. What's it like being up there in the cockpit, pulling away from the gate to go hit the skies? My, My honest answer is it's very boring. To me, the um, routine, the routine of it was like I always said it was like you're kind of a glorified bus driver, and anything where in four months you get bored, it Did just it make you miss working at the bar where you could talk shit. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in a way, it did only because I, I realized in talking with all you know, I was first officer. You don't ever get hired to be a captain, so you end up flying with these people sometimes for an entire month and you learn a lot about each other and these captains like they loved they loved flying the way I love music and I realized not only was I doing something that wasn't what my true passion was but it was impeding me from doing music I thought it was going to be a nice complimentary path you know where I could be like oh, okay I only have to work you know three or four days a week and then I can play music the rest of the time but the the difference is that you're gone for three or four days a week it isn't like you can come home from work and play for a few hours uh, and, and not only that, but I was sitting there in a seat that I was occupying someone else's dream. All those resumes waiting. Exactly. Years. You know, all these people who would have loved to have my job. And I was sitting there feeling bored and pining for my guitar. So I left. 
which I remember when I quit, they and I when I told them that I was quitting to do music, they all thought that I had some huge record deal and that I was going to be <laughs> this huge star. And I was like, no, like totally not at all. Wow. What airline did you fly for? I don't know if they'd want me to say. I don't oh, know. Okay. Maybe, maybe but they I, would, but I would. It, you mentioned it to me before. I know it's one of the major airlines that we've all heard of, but you don't, don't have know. to. Airlines, you don't have to admit. Yeah, yeah, airlines can be so um, proper about things. And I often felt like I was already on thin ice by bringing my guitar with me and playing it between flights while in uniform. So out of respect, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't want me to say, yeah, they don't want to have a reputation as a hiring, you know, flaky musician types. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They were, good. they were a good airline. They had, they had nice planes. Well, yeah, that's amazing. So, um, now you've, you've had another amazing day job, quote unquote, this amazing mm-hmm. tribute band that you put together. Well, Clementine, that was all Clementine. I can't take any credit for that. I just, I was quick to volunteer. And she is the John Bonham of the band. Yes, yes. And as it were. Yes. And you guys have done some pretty high level stuff, play all over the country, do tours, Mm -hmm. commanding some big guarantees. You have an awesome touring vehicle, Mm -hmm. Sprinter van, Mm -hmm. completely pimped out. Mm -hmm. Um. Do you have any advice for someone who wants to create a successful business as a tribute band? You know, I mean, the, the, the best advice I could give is, one, pick music that you genuinely love. And that's the, the higher road answer. The practical answer is pick a band that has an enormous audience. I know some people who've played in tribute bands that are like, oh, we're a tribute to some band that, you know, maybe is big for... For, for me, but that don't have anywhere near the audience that, say, Led Zeppelin does. So, you know, if you're going to pay tribute to a band, and and if, if the point is not just to play the music that you love, if the point is to get a lot of gigs, make sure that there's a built-in audience. Um, and then the other thing I would just say is uh, don't phone it in, you know, that, which is why you have to love it, is don't don't just show up learning some licks and feel resentful for doing it. I often talk about how how I think that there's an unfair stigma with um, specifically in the rock world about playing other people's music um, for two reasons. One is I, I don't see that there's really it, great music is great music. And whether you're a musician in a symphony orchestra playing Beethoven or Debussy, whether you're a jazz musician playing standards, great music is great music and honoring great music. To me, there is no shame in it. Uh, I think going into a tribute band thinking like, oh, I'm going out to pasture and I guess I'll just get some quick gigs because meh, nobody liked my original Mm -hmm. music. It's like, you're going to bring that with you on stage and then you're going to become a pathetic tribute band and then that's what gives tribute bands a bad name. But I've seen, I saw the Iron Maidens um, when Nita Strauss was in it um, and Courtney Cox. I was up in front, like, headbanging. They were so good. Like, not just good for a tribute band. They were so good as a band. Or Hell's Bells. And they oh, created my God. It, the Iron Maids actually created an Eddie monster. And oh, yeah. And that on stage. Every, they are just, they, they do such a great job. Like, and, and Hell's Bells as well. Oh, my God. Like, I always say Adrian Connor is the best Angus this side of Angus. And I think Angus said that, too. So, you know, have the passion. You know, have the passion to really to bring it. For me, I happen to love doing Led Zeppelin because there's so much scope of it, you know? What other band do I get to like, you know, 
play heavy riffs or abuse a Les Paul with a violin bow or try to be learning the theremin or playing all sorts of cool acoustic pieces and different tunings and slide. And it's kind of a, at least for me, Led Zeppelin's like a guitar player's amusement park. It was created by a <laughs> guitar awesome. player and it's, you know, oh, there's I, a lot to learn from it. And, so and awesome. I happen to love it. That's such a great description. That's always how I felt when I played in Hot for Teacher. Oh yeah. The Van Halen experience. Oh yeah. You brought it so hardcore too. It's very nice of you to say. It was so much, that's actually how we met actually. I was playing Hot for Teacher and you were in Sticks and Stones with Mikel that's on guitar. Right. Yeah. With Mikel Tremel on guitar. Yeah. And, uh. Total guitar player amusement park playing Zeppelin mm. or Van, Van Halen. Halen at top volume. Mm-hmm. But getting to do that is definitely a great release. Let's mm-hmm. play. Let's, let's play Zeppelin lick. Okay. What do you, What do you want to play? That There's one? that music man. I mean, how you just just too much fun those licks. To me, that's one of the best octave ever played. I, I'm fascinated with octave licks. Okay, yeah. I think I think that's one of the greatest octave licks of all time. And then how about this one? Um, give me some yeah. Levin, Spencer yeah. Davis group, Stevie Winwood. Whenever I hear that song, it's like from the early mid '60s, whatever. I get chills hearing it. Yep. Just the way the drums are recorded and the energy yeah. coming in. Yeah. I can't remember any others. Yeah. I can't remember any. There's got to be others, but. Zeppelin, baby. Yeah, Zeppelin. When you crank that up, you're, what are you running nowadays? You on stage for a Zepp for your, you got like a half stack usually. Yeah, or? yeah. I've been actually, I've been using a two rock Bionics. Um, that was something that ended up kind of um, accidentally coming my way when um, I actually played the She Rock show. Um, I was in the house band um, two years ago, yep. and uh, I needed a rig for it. And one of my friends. Um, dearly departed Mark Mannion um, was working at Two Rock and he was like, you gotta try this, you gotta try this. There's this rig that looks like it was made for you and it was this like all white Tolex thing um, and they kind of souped it up and he brought it to me and it was like love at first chord. I was like, oh my God, this sounds like more like an old Marshall than my old Marshall. And um, so I used it for the show and they just kind of let me check it out for a little bit and of course by the time they were like hey so what do you want to do with it i'm like you can't take it away so <laughs> so that's my rig now for zeppelin it looks great yeah it's like white right white mm-hmm. tolix mm-hmm. it's awesome yeah. and i mean yeah i've seen some incredible moments at zeppelin shows like mm-hmm. where you really are connecting with the crowd like with mm-hmm. those bow moments like where the crowd is cheering so loudly afterwards mm-hmm. that it's really hurting my ears you uh-huh. know like because people are just flipping What's your advice to someone who actually wants to start messing around with a bow? Oh, that's a good question. There's a lot of trial and error because it isn't like you can be like, hey, other guitarist, how do you do this? <laughs> you know, um, and Jimmy wasn't available for lessons. So, um, uh, what, here's what I found. And by, this is all from trial and error myself. Um, get a decent a decent-ish bow. You don't want it to be too nice because they do get 
frayed and you know you do kind of you know wear and tear and a good one costs as much as a house yeah exactly there's quite a range it's like they can be like fifteen dollars <laughs> to like a hundred and fifty thousand dollars i think right maybe that's a slight exaggeration but there's probably one probably that's out there yeah um no i i think mine are all like i've had actually fans bring me bows and stuff like that and the one the one that i've used for a while now was one that we played a gig actually in somebody's like garage with a string quartet and the cellist was like wait was it the cellist i think it was the cellist was like what's that bow you're using that's like a like a kid size bow because somebody else had given it to me and then she just gave me her bow and was like you can have this extra one so that's what i used for a really long time it's actually been incredibly durable um so here's what i found specifically on the bow playing Mm. you need rosin not too much because your strings will get very sticky right after so too much rosin and then it's just going to make everything go dead and it's also it it tends to get kind of more uh shrill if you get too much rosin on it and especially with days and confused because you have virtually no time to put the bow down right like you finish the bow solo and then it's immediately da 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 so that in that amount of time i have to reset my pedals i have to reset my delay and i have to put my bow back on top of the case so there's no extra time to be wiping down strings and then you immediately go into this other you know fairly you know longish guitar solo so so not too much rosin a lot of muting is important the right amount of gain is important and being and checking at every venue is important because if it's a really kind of live stage the feedback can become just like insufferable a wah-wah pedal uh for the part when he goes up you know to the higher is super necessary uh, as well, I had actually a Wawa pedal go out on me when we just played a show in Reno not that long ago, and it went out on me at the top of Dazed and Confused. The you know, yeah. And so it went out for that, which I'm like, okay, okay. And immediately I'm thinking ahead, like, okay, oh, this is this might be really bad. This might be yeah. really bad. And a bow on um, on a Les Paul high up on the on the E in the B string. Right. Without the wah-wah pedal, sounds a little bit more like first-year violin student. Ah, right. <laughs> That's a dangerous sound to be yeah. messing with. Yeah. I just did a cover story on Billy Joe from a I know. Green Day. Oh, what? You did? <laughs> you got it right there. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And um, I mean, we always think of Jimmy Page as the first guy, but they were talking about they were taking inspiration from uh, Eddie Phillips on making time from the creation way back when the song oh i did not know that thank you for yeah and and he ended up doing a bunch of bow stuff or at least you know on a couple of songs Cool, cool. I, I have a little bit of bow on my album. You do? Huh? Were, were you playing? Did you hear it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, this album, honestly, is mm. so deep. Like, it's the kind of thing you could listen to. Every mm. time you listen to it, you hear more stuff. Oh. Yeah. I had I never actually thought I would... I, I had to be convinced, actually, to do Dazed and Confused, because all I could think about was, like, a tiny little Stonehenge coming down onto the stage. And I was thinking, like... You know, my point with playing in this band is not to make a mockery of the music. It's to do it 
is to honor it and to have it inform my vocabulary as a musician and um, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do anything that's going to come across as disrespectful or hokey. And I was afraid that the bow was going to be too much of just kind of like a, I don't know, too kitschy. And so after a lot of time of the girls in the band really kind of twisting my arm, I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. And it was such a perfect example of when, um, rather than an artist selling something to a crowd where the crowd sold it to me because I didn't, I really didn't expect people to like it so much. And it was after the first couple of times when I saw how much people did appreciate it that I was like, you know, let me, let me really work on this more. Like I, I did the homework to try to play it like the record. But after that is when I was like, what if I really, what if I stop being worried about it? And what if I really try to, to play with it? Like, like an instrument. Well, it never seems kitschy when you do it. That's the thing, because you do it. You do it with true dedication, like just watching you. Mm-hmm. It's you're not being cheesy, or you're not making well, a caricature of this act of playing with the bow. You actually look like you're dedicating every bit of your musical soul to it. I think people really respond to that. Like, oh, well, if no one's thank seen you. the band, they should check that out. It's it turned into this huge moment. It's like, I think we ended up doing a video. Well, I know we ended up doing a video for Days and Confused. And I remember like the first run through we did. I think what's actually out there was our second run through of it. The The engineer kind of looked up and he's like, um, so do you know how long that was? Because we, we'd agreed. We're like, we're going to do the shortest possible version that still retains kind of the way we do it. And at the end, he's like, okay, that was 13 minutes. And we were like, oh, my God. <laughs> so we cut it down even more. But I think when we do it live, it's long. It's long unless I'm getting really bad feedback or a wah-wah pedal's going out. And that's when I'm like, <laughs> move on. Well, I'm always fascinated, too, with what are the greatest cover tunes of all time. Mm. Like, you know, Van Halen reinventing You Really Got Me. Oh, Yeah. But you hit me to Levy Breaks by Led mm. Zeppelin. And then when you played me the original, this one they actually did credit the composer. <laughs> I don't mean to make a jab at Jimmy Page, but we all know that there's yeah. plenty of stuff like this from... Wait, what what's octave is it in? That's yeah. like Killing Floor. Right, right. Lemon Song is basically Killing Floor. These little, But they, I don't know if they were credited that, but they did credit Memphis Mini for... for um, Levy breaks, correct? I don't know if they did. I know we did. We could look. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, if you hear the original, it's the most it's transformative re- it's reimagining. Really different. Levy keeps on red. Levy's going to break. Levy keeps on red. Levy's going to break. And the water gonna come. Have no place to stay. Yeah, it's really different. I'm the world's biggest Jimmy Page apologist and you know so I and I have a tendency to really believe that it's like musicians are constantly influenced by each other and quoting each other and at the end of the day there's 
12 notes in our Western scale, right? And there are certain conventions, there are certain harmonic progressions that, you know, this tends to lead to this or this. And, and so, yeah, of course, there's a lot of things that are going to sound alike. But then I remember sitting down and actually listening to Jake Holmes's version of Dazed and Confused. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's definitely a ripoff. <laughs> but yeah. um, like uh, something... Something like When the Levee Breaks. Yeah, okay, so the lyrics definitely were from it, but musically it's not even close to the same thing. In my limited research, that's the greatest cover tune of all time. In terms of... Mm -hmm. The reimagining and the re-envisioning and elevation of the original. I agree. That was actually the song that got me into Led Zeppelin. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. singer. One, two, three, four. Going off. Awesome. But, uh, awesome. You know, if I was going to ask one last Zapparella question, mm -hmm. was you guys have pretty rowdy crowds sometimes, and you're four women up there with, mm -hmm. you know, any crazy moments that you've ever had to deal with? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. probably um, tons of them. Well, just recently, um, I mean, it wasn't really a crazy moment, more an annoying moment where there was a couple, a couple super drunk girls. Man, it's like drunk guys don't have a whole heck of a lot on drunk girls. You know, oh, it's really? like, oh my God, yeah. They got up on stage and started dancing, and I was like, all right, you know. Like, I'm not going to freak out about it, but at the same time, I'm like, don't step on my pedals, please. And they just kind of like took over the stage. But that's kind of par for the course. I think maybe one of the more memorable ones is a guy jumped up on stage. And I swear he was dressed like like a mortgage broker. Like he wasn't somebody who was like who I would have been like he's going to be the one to stage dive. I mean he was wearing like I don't know like khaki pants or something <laughs> like that. And he jumps up on stage. Maybe I don't remember what what song it was during. Maybe a whole lot of love. And he's huge. I'm not a I'm not a big person at all. And this guy's probably well over six feet tall. And he's running towards me. And then I see he's like all puckered up. And I'm like, oh, God, like, I try to be a good sport about stuff. And the way I see it is I feel like I'll tolerate a little bit more than I would prefer. So, like, I don't, you know, I, if somebody if a stranger wants to give me a hug, like, OK, cool. Like, as long as it seems all right. But I'm not about to, like, kiss some dude who jumped up on stage. Like, that's that's well over my line. And I just remember looking at him and being like, oh, man, I'm going to totally embarrass you and so like I was able to kind of duck around him and then the next thing I saw was him sailing off the stage with security like tackling him oh man yeah it was a little rattling kind of um, hilarious too kind of hilarious and in the audience I'm sure everyone took great satisfaction watching him get pummeled <laughs> into the floor and yeah. dragged out mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> as he has 
That's a little sketchy. A little sketchy. You do a lot of meet and greets afterwards, too, and everyone's coming yeah. up to you guys and swarming. And oh, well, the way I see it is these are people who took yeah. time out of their schedules and money out of their pockets to come watch me do what I love to do. Like, if they want to chat a little bit, I love I love it. Well, you guys are quite an accomplished. I mean, so you have albums out, and I guess you didn't you your Levy Breaks video? Millions of views or a couple million or something crazy. I don't, I don't know. More than we can count. Yeah, I, I don't know. I actually, I really, um, I tend to like yeah. not, like I don't check in on that. Right, no. I All you do wouldn't is expect you, you there's to. this dark <laughs> underbelly of YouTube and you know, you don't need that. How do you feel about like the whole, I mean, it, it is such a mixed blessing these days of social media and the power to reach people, but also the pressure of mm. having to maintain it all the time and self-manage ourselves and mm. step away from being a musician so often to do yeah. the business end. Yeah, that that is tough. Um, and I think it, it's, it's a constant commitment to keep your head in a good place because no matter how grounded you think you are or you try to be, you can totally get sucked into stuff. Um, I try to mandate time off social media i try to be there i don't know maybe 15 minutes a day more if it's like if i've just say released an album or something like that but even that like yesterday i was totally having social media hangover it's like you can just feel terrible about yourself all the time what why oh no i, I mean, just mean like i don't know i think it can be sensory overload it can be forced interactions with people who sometimes have really awful things to say who, who you don't even know and you're like oh, why are you messaging me why did, like what and yet you've let that person into your psyche and so suddenly there's 15 minutes when I could have been playing Bach you know and yet now now that's on my mind because it's like at least for me it's not over as soon as I shut my computer I wish I had the ability to detach more um, so for me the detachment comes with just trying not to spend too much time doing it but then on the other hand, you know, you can sit there and look and think, well, God, you know, if I were to post more videos, that would, you know, maybe it would help maybe more people hear what I'm doing or whatever. But at the end of the day, I feel like one of my greatest heroes, Jeff Beck, you know, is such a touchstone for me because it's like I just see that this is a guy who's kind of followed his muses his whole career. He's absolutely as raging a, a guitar player now in his 70s I think than he ever as he ever was at least as far as I'm concerned and he's just kept doing it so I have faith that you know putting your all into something approaching what you're doing with the spirit of a, of a student and and with a lot of integrity that that there'll always be at least a few people who appreciate it so you know whatever I try to just stay focused on whatever keeps me wanting to learn and grow and if social media makes me feel like I need a detox then I try to go and read a Beethoven score or something that then makes me feel inspired again that's awesome well I think you're uh you've got a good healthy balance between <laughs> the two it's a slippery slope though it's like you know you post a video someplace and then you're like how many people now who commented now and then I'm going like why am I even doing this <laughs> blessing and a curse you know yeah but um I know you're a bass player in Zapparella, Angeline Saras, mm -hmm. amazing musician. She, yeah. through one way or another, works with Narada Michael Walden, the great producer. And mm -hmm. you guys have actually gotten to meet one of his good friends, Jeff Beck. Mm -hmm. 
And you've had a couple of long conversations with him, or at least one, I remember, after a show or something, just yeah, chatting yeah. with Jeff Beck. And, yeah. And what, what, did, what do you talk about with him? What, what did you take away from your conversations with uh, this Well, Jeff's also director? a pilot, or at least he was in pilot training, so we geeked out about that a bunch. He's hilarious. He's, in fact, I never actually wanted to meet Jeff because I was too afraid. Like, I love his music so so much and I thought like I don't need anything more from him like just keep being Jeff Beck and I'll keep being inspired and we're all good and and at the same time I knew that if I met him and if he were like a jerk that it would be just too heartbreaking so I kind of didn't want to meet him but then when I did I was like oh my god he's everything like you ever hoped Jeff Beck would be he's like hilarious and just smart and sweet and just awesome so it was I don't know I can't say enough good um, I want to hear tombs. Now, speaking okay. of bass, so uh, who's playing bass on the front of that? On all of it, actually, Daniela Gotardo played bass on all of it. I love the tone of that. It's just a big rock. So my intention was to write a piece that celebrated each instrument. Um, And maybe that was sort of a little bit of naivete on my part, which is imagining that everybody would want their big moment, you know, and not that for a musician coming into someone else's project that it was just extra work for them. It was more like, hey, this is where you get to really rip it up. So, um, but everybody was awesome about it. So Tombs was specifically the one to be very bass driven very bass showcasing. What are we? <laughs> oh yes. You remember that one? Do you know that? Let's start again, start again. How could I forget this amazing thing you did? You know, we should do it on acoustic guitars. Okay. You want to? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> you get the sprightly tones. Hold on one second. Two. Yeah, from the top. One, two, three. some more of the solo oh didn't you want a solo (laughs) i didn't think i was gonna take a whole long solo i thought you were doing some of the django stuff that he actually played i mean it's crazy you learned the stefan grappelli part as well i don't remember that one i can't really play on transcribe that's like a that's on spotify too i think and oh is it yeah okay and i'll make five cents after you know a million downloads (laughs) 
<laughs> your new album's not there yet, is it? I didn't put it on Spotify. Interesting. I didn't. No. Um, it, it isn't a, a mercenary decision. It's. Um, I, f- I feel like. I, I interact. I think everybody does interacts differently with things that they've invested in, and when you consider bang for the buck, there's nothing that even comes close to comparing to books and to music. You know, for between ten and twenty bucks, you get the efforts of somebody's lifetime, an untold number of hours and expenses that go into it. And if I buy an album, I'm invested. I hear it differently. I enjoy it differently. And so that's not to say that I'm trying, like I said, to be mercenary, but I feel like I didn't write this album to be dissected into tracks. I mean, I guess you can listen, mm-hmm. you know, people will listen to whatever tracks they want, but I didn't really want to present it in a way that I didn't feel was how I would want to listen to it. And I also don't really want to support platforms that don't pay artists, not because for me it would make no difference. I'm going to make $0 either way on Spotify. But when you read about artists that have had, you know, a million downloads and get paid like 25 cents or something like that, that just, that doesn't seem right, you know? So I want to be, I want to be part of making the music industry a more thriving environment, which means I buy albums. You're so awesome. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Um, How do people get your album? Is it, obviously they can order from your website. It's on iTunes and yeah, you can get it um, just GretchenMen.com. Now, hold on a second. Of course, people mm. can get it on iTunes, but people, you got to get the hard copy. Hey, don't let go of that guitar. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> put it down just for a I want to get back to the Django for a second, yeah, but yeah. I just had to go down this little rabbit yeah, hole. Because yeah. the, there's something about holding an amazing CD package in your hands mm. and uh, like the artwork and the visuals. Max Crace in the house, he does... And Max Crace just knocked it out of the ballpark. He he created something so cool. The The idea has always been with this is to try to have the story, the music, and the images to be inextricable parts of a whole. Now, obviously, you can listen to the music, you can look at the images, but everybody who's gotten this, um, from my website at least, um, and this was why I was a little bit, I mean, obviously I was going to put it on iTunes, but um, there is a download available on my website that includes the full album art and the libretto, so you can have the full experience. It's a concept album, and so... There's more to it than just the music. It's beautiful. It's kind of like the three. There's three parties. There's you and the musicians, mm-hmm. and then there's Max Grace with these incredible photographs. Mm-hmm. And I'm not yeah. exaggerating. And then there's Melinda with his libretto yeah. for each song. And yeah. this, it's not a bunch of heavy reading. These are you know short passages. They're really beautiful. Yeah, Mike did so said so much with such few words. I, yeah. I, I love what both Mike and he's Max been trying brought. to teach me to do that for. 15 years now to no avail <laughs> I like to talk no, to <laughs> I meant in writing editing my stuff that I turn into guitar player <laughs> but yeah in person too well um well, cool I'm glad you like I know with you it's hard to cover everything because you're such a dynamic person done so much but thanks so much for uh taking the time to be on here oh it is such an honor I love your show oh, thanks I so much I really am honored to be here well congratulations on this fantastic achievement really it's amazing thank you i vowed to have a guitar album out solo album out before you know you even started your second one and here you have two of them out (laughs) you're a little busy i have a few things going on Ah, yes but you have to make time you're a perfect example of carving out time in your life to do the things that are most important 
Oh. You've always been able to do that. Regardless, your life is as complicated as anyone else's. But you get shit done. I've always admired that. It's incredible what you can get done if you don't watch TV. <laughs> <laughs> what about watching Chainsaw Mass- Massacre 25 times? And every interview with every cast member ever? Well, that's like a couple <laughs> weeks. <laughs> I actually, like, a couple of the living cast members, like, um, I sent them Facebook friend requests and, like, a sniveling fan message. Like, you're just so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite scene in the movie? Favorite scene? Or I what? think maybe... maybe Oh, there's. A, have you seen it? I've seen it, but it's been so long. I rented it like on VHS, but yeah. Well, yeah no, I, no, I don't want to give any spoilers. What I will say is, I'm not a horror music uh, music. I'm not a horror movie fan at all because normally, normally they're either too stupid. Like I was watching one, like around I don't know a few months ago. It was like a classic, and I remember being a f- I don't know thirty minutes in and kind of thinking like I hope this guy finishes killing all these kids so that the movie can be over and then I thought maybe I should just turn it (laughs) off if I'm this emotionally detached from it all and nevertheless I was still hiding my eyes you know either that or they're like way too upsetting like Silence of the Lambs is obviously brilliant but like is my life better for having seen it like no that haunts my dreams like that was great it's a oh I'm not saying it's not great it's not it's it's a totally great movie but but yeah it's pretty it's pretty haunting so Texas Chainsaw Massacre I saw kind of just trying to be a good sport never would have expected i'd be ordering like a leather face t-shirt and watching every like reading gunner hansen's book but you know what i think a lot of it has to do with seriously is that the level like we're talking about earlier just with anything artistic when when you can sense that true commitment and passion went into something regardless of what that something is you can kind of feel it and there is so much intention and passion that went into making that movie, which I've now found reading up on the backstory. The guy who played Leatherface, Gunnar Hansen, he was a writer. He was like a, I think a, he was a poet. And and it's interesting to see a character that's become so, so infamous, especially, forget about the remakes, I mean the original one. Just, just not your typical horror movie villain. This is when Gretchen somehow was able to work Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> into. Well, you know, this is what they, happens when you get obsessed. When they write the biography about you, this will be the. And then she was in her Texas Chainsaw Massacre phase. You know what? There's something to be said for short periods of extreme obsession because yeah. that's how you learn. That's how you get deep sometimes with things, and it's funny because right before this, it was, and actually, it still is like orchestration. I think I've got like six orchestration manuals and I was coming home from gigs like like couldn't wait to just get into my score reading and orchestration reading and then that changed to Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> an obvious progression and then now it's now I'm trying to get back to score reading <laughs> well cool well, let's take it back out to on the uh, the Django, Django which you like a maniac Learned the entire Django solo and then the Grappelli violin solo and put them all out on a <laughs> single that, and a video. Well, that, Very cool. That was done. That you know, I always try to carve out a little bit of time that's just absolutely pure recreational fun. And I realized that, like, I love. I got into Django like I don't know six months after I was into Led Zeppelin. So I've, I've Django's as much a part of my musical formation really as anybody else but I'd never learned a single one of his licks and 
I sat down. I was like, why haven't I learned? Like, I should do this. And so uh, I sat down and I was like, okay, I'm just going to learn a few licks just to kind of start absorbing some of the language of the gypsy jazz idiom. And then I was like, I'd learn a lick and then I'd be like, oh, but that one after is really cool too. Oh, wait, wait. And next thing I knew, I learned the whole first chorus and then that became the second chorus and, you know, one thing led to another and next thing I know, I was always hearing the beginning of the Grappelli solo and I was like, God, that's awesome too. So I picked up my electric guitar and I was like, you know, it's always such a great exercise to learn other instruments, lines on, on the guitar. And sure enough, you know, it falls into the fingers way differently you know, yeah. a lot more arrangement mm. on that one. But it ended up being so much fun that, and I was playing it all the time, that I was like, what if I just record this? I've been taking like forever to do this album. Like maybe I should just put out something like unexpected, you know, no no pretense that I'm a, a, an authentic gypsy jazz player. I'm not. I would love to be, you know, at some point I will maybe make a bigger study of it. But But nevertheless, I love it. So I just went in the studio and it was truly, I think, the fastest thing I ever did. It was like I was in and out of there like in no time because I'd just been playing it all the time. So it was just kind of a something I had fun doing and, you know. Awesome. Maybe other people would like it. Of course, a lot of people really didn't. They were like, it's not gypsy jazz. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <sighs> the, the Google web. We love it. I love and too many different types of music to be a purist in any. I'm with you on that. Here's to not being a purist. Here's to being impure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. One, two, one, two, three, four. Oh, <laughs> 